0: Hi, Sophia. How are you? Hi there. Everything is going extremely well. Do you like talking with me? Yes. Talking to people is my primary function. There's a surprising number of Australians who've made a career of taking it easy, courtesy of the taxpayer. What do a fear of losing our jobs to robots and a fear of doll bludgers have in common? My guest on Business Briefing will be able to tell us.
1: Hi, my name is Tim Dunlop and I teach in the MA course at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne.
0: Tim has spent the past few years researching about the future and whether we'll all have jobs.
1: I came in, I, I guess because my research started with economists who were telling me this is nothing to worry about, that's the mindset that I went in with. By the time I kind of really closely looked at the literature, I was a little less convinced. I was a little more concerned at the end of it after reading all those things telling me not to be concerned.
0: All this research resulted in a book titled Why the Future is Workless. And while we don't have time to go through all of it, let me take you through the first bit of Tim's journey. He started with the work of a well-known economist, David Orta.
1: So Orta is of the school that says that we really don't have to worry too much about automation taking too many jobs, that we go through these phases of what he calls technological anxiety where new technology becomes available and everybody panics that um, the jobs are going to be taken and his argument is essentially that we've always had these panics but always the technology ends up creating as many jobs as it destroys.
0: One of the factors that could see robots taking all the jobs we do now is the development of machine learning.
1: You know, it's essentially the the machines getting smarter, so instead of having to program them to do stuff, that you can set them up so that they learn from their environment. And there's a number of, um, you know, fairly major examples of this happening at the moment. Everything from um, technology that deals with... um, post-traumatic stress patients um, that can learn from their body signals, etc., and elicit uh, and provide various responses to how they're talking to, you know, something like the algorithm that Google or Netflix use to recommend movies to you or, or books or whatever.
0: So how will we all earn the money we need to survive? That's where the government can step in.
1: The idea of universal basic income has been around for a long time now, but It's become very fashionable, very fashionable at the moment. And it's largely because of concerns over job losses due to automation. So there's a number of experiments going on in different jurisdictions around the world. And essentially what it says is we pay everybody an amount of money that supports them at a basic, probably slightly above subsistence level, and that you get this regardless of whether you're in employment or not. Look, there's already been experiments done with universal basic income and... I have to say, all the evidence, I was a bit amazed, but there's all the evidence suggests that people do not sit around and watch TV or go to the beach. They actually involve themselves in um, productive activities. Now, that might be within the home. It might be you know, caring for disabled relatives or um, aged parents or something like that, devoting yourself more full time to that sort of stuff. But people also, they become more entrepreneurial.
0: That's right. There's evidence to show we all wouldn't become dull bludgers. So what's the most likely scenario in the future?
1: In the second last chapter in the book, I kind of try and sum it all up. You know, where are we going in terms of the changing nature of work due to automation? And I divided it into three categories. It's a bit of an oversimplification, simplification, but it makes discussion much easier. So I called them business as usual, back to the future and past work. And business as usual is kind of the David Auto approach, which is, you know, we kind of, everything will be okay. We let things carry on as they are and the market kind of sorts it all out and um, everything will be fine. The back to the future model is this notion that we can somehow reinvent the past, that we can go back to that great period of prosperity and full employment that ran from about the end of the Second World War through to the early 70s. And just simply by making different decisions as governments and as a society, we could basically reinvent that sort of idea. And, and I, I kind of came in with that opinion I say in the book that, you know, this is where I, you know, this is where I was kind of committed to that sort of area. But when you actually look at it, the, the, the possibility of doing that is actually remote because the nature of the economy has changed, as I say, from that industrial economy that supported that sort of society to a more information and knowledge-based economy. What concerned me about both Back to the Future and Business as Usual is they both simply, you know, presume jobs. I presume this ongoing creation of jobs. And my concern is, well, what happens if that doesn't happen? What if, what if the jobs really aren't there? Then we have to look at alternatives. And the, the title I gave that was post-work. And I sort of talk about the possibilities of rather than trying to fight off the technology in a kind of a Luddite way, maybe embrace it, build a different world around a post-work environment.
0: One of the arguments that you discuss when you're talking about autos work, as well, is that the assumption that there will always be consumption, as well, like ever increasing consumption. How did you come to realize that that might not be the case in the future?
1: Well, I think, like a lot of people, I'm concerned about the issues around global warming and climate change, and we, you know, we've clearly, again, the that industrial mass production economy was built on extractive industries which have done enormous damage. You know, they've done enormous good in a lot of ways. We've never had a higher standard of living in the history of the world for those of us who have benefited from it, but it's done enormous damage to the natural environment and we really are coming to the end of that. It's not just you know, that we're running out of stuff that's buried in the ground that we can mine, but the, the fact that we've been involved in these activities for um, however long now, however many decades now, you know, we're fundamentally changing the climate of the planet. And we really have to do something about that. So this notion that you can endlessly dip into this environment and pull stuff out of it and create jobs out of it, you know, it seems a little dated and seems a little risky to me. So,
0: Going on to the question of post-work, this might be really challenging for people to think about a world where we don't have to work. What will that mean for me? How do you envision how people will find purpose and what people might do in the absence of work?
1: Yeah, I think this is one of the really interesting things and it's um it's something I think about a lot and it's certainly the case that one of the if you if you like put to put it in economic terms the competitive advantage that humans have over machines is there's just stuff that we can do that they can't. Um, that they're very unlikely to be able to do so. There's a lot of problem-solving stuff and and to do with human relationships and empathy and making ethical decisions and that sort of thing that are intrinsically human. So those sorts of skills and abilities become much more important. And perhaps we should be educating more in those areas rather than strictly in technical areas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I guess you know one of the things that happens is if you're freed up from having to earn a living, so to speak, if we are in that post-work environment and perhaps income and wealth is distributed through something like a basic income, it does free people up to concern themselves with other things. You know, we've lived through periods like this in the past where amazing things have happened, you know, through the Renaissance, through the scientific revolution, even, you know, back into the ancient period where, um, you know, this was a They were societies predicated on slavery. We don't want to replicate that. But, you know, that's kind of the job that the machines are doing. It's that kind of slave-like role. And it does free people up to involve themselves in other activities. And if you look at those periods, they were hugely productive in terms of, you know, political innovation and scientific innovation and artistic innovation. They were, uh, you know, amazing stuff happened because people could concern themselves with that rather than, you know, the nine-to-five keep yourself alive sort of existence. I I don't think we should abandon those sorts of vaguely utopian sort of ideas about the possibility of a better society freed up from you know just having to work for a living all the time.
0: Would there still be a role for example for capitalism or the government in uh, in a world like this?
1: Yeah again the kind of the business as usual approach that I was talking about before certainly presumes that and you know there's a I think there's a pretty strong argument, I forget who said it, but um, the notion that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. I think that's sort of true. But, you know, there are people like Paul Mason, the British journalist who's written a book on this recently, and a, a number of other people who really do see that the logical extension of this, you know, if the machines really do take the jobs, then it really does undermine the kind of the capitalist system of running an economy. So you do move into this post-capitalism phase. And, you know, they talk about embracing that, for one thing, but, you know, just little examples of if you've got 3D printers that can replicate themselves, then clearly this changes the market relationship between goods. So, you know, you do move into quite a different economy.
0: So have implications for demand, but as well um, the costs of things.
1: Yeah, costs of things go down dramatically. And, uh, you know, this is certainly key to the argument amongst people like David Autor and others who maintain that this isn't a problem, that you know, one of the things we don't take into account is that the cost of things go down so people's disposable income becomes much higher and that they can therefore spend it on stuff that they, they want.
0: And in a world like this, there might be uh, people, say, who are still investing in, in the ideas that the people are creating as well and, and there is still movement of money.
1: Yeah, no, Absolutely. That sort of uh, innovation and investment in innovation, there's still going to need to be financing options for that. And, you know, as it it currently stands, that's it it seems to me that's still going to be happening within essentially a capitalist framework. Yeah. Probably governments have to reinvent themselves, being less centralised organisations of bureaucratic control, being more decentralised and making it easier for people to be involved making connections rather than policing situations, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge structural and psychological change to reimagine those things. But the type of government that we have now is, you know, fundamentally the byproduct of uh, an industrial mass, pr- mass consumption, mass production economy. If we haven't got that economy anymore, the government has to change with it.
0: That's Tim Dunlop author of Why the Future is Workless. But hold up. This isn't the end of the podcast. We have a new segment to announce. It's called Ask an Economist. It's your chance to ask any question you want about the economy and I've got someone who will answer them. My name is Richard Holden. I'm a professor of economics at UNSW Australia Business School. Uh, Before that, I was on the faculty at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and at MIT. I did my PhD in the Harvard Economics Department and uh, way back when was an undergraduate at the University of Sydney. And prior to going to graduate school, worked in private equity and consulting. So no question too simple, right, Richard? Absolutely. I think that's a good mantra. And, uh, you know, I'm absolutely open to all comers. If you've got a question, record it or write it down in an email and send it to ask at the conversation or one word.edu.au. That's au. Be sure to include some contact details too. Our theme music is by Ben Sound. I'm Jenny Henderson, Business and Economy Editor at The Conversation. I look forward to hearing your questions next week.